Um, the perfect American. Is it perhaps Walt Disney or indeed Philip Glass? We'll need to keep, I think, a sense of irony about ourselves this evening. Anyway, The Perfect American is Philip Glass's, I count, 18th opera, though I use the word opera pretty loosely. Um, Eno already staged three of Glass's works, Arkhanaten, The Making of the Representative Planet 8, and most recently, Satagraha, which of course returns next season. We're going to talk about Glass's operas and specifically the new opera, The Perfect American in a while. But first, Disney himself, Walt Disney. One, I suppose, of the most potent brands in the United States, as American as perhaps Coca-Cola. Walter Elias Disney was born in December 1901 in Chicago. In 1906, when he was five, the family moved to a farm in Marceline, Missouri. And it was there in Marceline that Disney developed two passions that would be with him throughout his life. Firstly, a passion for drawing, and secondly, a passion for railway trains. And Marceline was a good place to develop that particular passion, as you'll discover in tonight's opera, because the Atchison, Topeka and Santa Fe Railway, doesn't that trip off the tongue, actually ran slap bang through the middle of the town. Indeed, some say the only reason the town was ever built was because of the railroad. It's said that young Walt would put his ear to the tracks, overcome with excitement, and hoping to hear the buzz of a train somewhere further on the line. Um, he trained as a graphic artist, becoming interested early on in animation, and that took him, of course, to Hollywood with his brother Roy in the 1920s. The first character he created as an animator was Oswald the Rabbit, but he lost the rights to Oswald, and the Disney Corporation would not regain those rights, eventually, I think, from uh, ABC television, I'm probably stand to be corrected, but uh, many years later into the second, last quarter of the 20th century. And then, of course, came the mouse who, if you'll allow me to mix metaphors, laid the golden egg. Mickey first spoke, but he didn't first appear on screen, in Steamboat Willie. And Disney would be the voice of the mouse right up until 1947. By then, the Disney Corporation had moved into making feature-length animated films, including Snow White, Pinocchio, Bambi, and perhaps above all, as we're here standing in Opera House, Fantasia, the most ambitious of these movies in which the artists who worked at the so-called factory uh, created stories to a classical score. In 1941, the artists who were working on Dumbo and others in the Disney factory went on strike. And there's a suggestion that this only confirmed Disney, and perhaps his brother Roy, in the particularly right-wing version of politics that the two of them would espouse thereafter. During the McCarthy period in the United States, Disney was, it is alleged, a founding member of the anti-communist group Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of of American ideals. And in 1947, Disney himself testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee where he branded three former animators and labor union organizers within the Disney studios as communist agitators. Disney also accused the Screen Cartoonists Guild of in fact being a communist front and charged that the 1941 strike was part of an organized communist effort to gain influence in Hollywood. This was also the time, on perhaps a lighter note, maybe not, that he was beginning to think about Disneyland, which, as he told a collaborator on the project, I just want it to look like nothing else in the world, and of course, it should be surrounded by a train. 
Disney died of lung cancer in December 1966. The Disney Corporation was now producing feature films, musicals like the phenomenally successful Mary Poppins, as well as animated work. And Disney had begun to work on his second theme park in Florida when he died. When it opened, posthumously, his brother Roy, who'd come out of retirement to run the corporation, christened it Walt Disney World. Well, we've a pair of guests tonight to explore Disney and indeed Philip Glass's new opera. In a moment, Christopher White, who's a member of the English National Opera Music Staff, who is also assistant conductor on The Perfect American. But first, Andrew Dixon, the theatre editor of The Guardian newspaper. Will you please welcome Andrew Dixon? Andrew, um, the big question first, what is it that makes Disney so important? I don't think there's a single thing. Can everyone hear me, by the way? You can. Good. Um, I don't think there's a single thing, really. I mean, you list the things that Walt Disney does. I mean, he produces, uh, pushes forward animation into completely new realms. He produces the first full-length animated movie with a soundtrack. Uh, he creates, as you mentioned in your very elegant introduction, Fantasia, this a sort of extraordinary attempt to try and bring classical music to a mass audience. Uh, he develops for that project Stereo Sound, the first time that's been used in cinema. Uh, he creates some of the most as astonishing live-action spectaculars. But also, I think it's what's really fascinating about Disney, as, as you were hinting at, is the sense of Disney Corp uh, as uh, one of the kind of great American companies. I mean, you said a moment ago that, that Walt Disney's name is kind of as American and as recognisable as Coca-Cola. And it may in many ways, the interesting thing about Disney, and I guess we'll return to this probably, is the sense in which Disney, even during his lifetime, became a kind of brand. Uh, instead of being Walter Elias Disney, he became Uncle Walt. Um, and much as he kind of created these cartoon characters who we know just by one name, Mickey, Minnie, Goofy, he himself became Walt. So kind of in the iconography of America, uh, 20th century America, particularly mid-period America, when it's at its height, I think Walt Disney has to be has to be there. You can't write about the history of America in that period without thinking about Walt Disney. There's a sense, perhaps, in which he reinvents himself, um, uh, carefully editing his own backstory um, uh, to become what he thinks an American in the 20th century ought to be. He becomes a paradigm. I mean, I'm struck, for example, about the commemorative stamp that perhaps all of us have seen at some time about Disney. There he sits in the middle with a kind of halo of all the characters he created. Saint Walt the American, the secular saint. It's incredible, isn't it? It reminds me of that famous sort of those 19th century uh, images of Shakespeare where Shakespeare is sort of conversing with Hamlet and, you know, <laughs> Puck is zooming off across the sky. You know, exactly the sort of sense of, 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 of this halo of creativity. Um, I think what's interesting about when you compare the, the sort of literal biography of, of, of Disney um, with, you know, as, I suppose bog biographies and the way that people have written about him is that the interesting thing is that no one can really seem to agree about anything when it comes to Walt Disney. You know, he is, I mean, of course, all lives are full of paradoxes. That's the thing about life. But actually, I mean, Disney is both, uh, you know, a Midwestern kid, uh, but he's also this great sophisticate who hangs out with Stokowski and makes one of the most incredible expressionist pieces of art, Fantasia. You know, he is uh, sort of 
by all accounts was a very, very good and loving father to his children, but could also be an absolute son of a bitch when it came to dealing with the labour unions. He was uh, obsessive, and yet he insisted that everyone in the studio called him by by his first name. Uh, he was almost certainly alcoholic towards the, the end of his life, and yet managed to project, as you suggest this incredibly wholesome fireside manner, this kind of idea of, of, of what Midwestern suburban America should be. Um, and yet he managed to kind of contain all of them in, in the same character. And the interesting thing, you know, going back to biographies, you know, if you look at the kind of biographies that are produced about Disney, and there'd be many, they tend to kind of deal with extremes, you know, either... Disney is a saint, and you know the, the the way the corporation tells the story and those sanctioned biographies, all of which are kind of cloyingly sentimental about him. And or he is a complete devil. And you know, if you type Walt Disney into Google, I mean, almost the sixth or seventh result will be conspiracy sites telling you that you know he is one of uh, he's a human being that was inhabited by reptilian life forces. That he's single-handedly responsible for most of the pornography that exists in America. You know, if you look very carefully at this particular picture of Minnie, you know, I mean, it, it, it's it, astonishing. And I suppose what that I'm interested by that when you think about. Walt as an icon is that it just shows that there is such fascination and I suppose in a way that's the background to this opera. But in a way also the, the, the irony of, 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 of Walt as it were, the brand, is that at one level it sees itself as quintessentially part of the 20th century. After all, the industrial art, the cinema, uh, the, the possibility of animation that only exists as a result of industrial uh, processes in the 20th century and yet the virtues it's, it preaches and espouses are essentially 19th century virtues virtues aren't they? I think that's exactly right and and it's very interesting I mean you, you'll see from the opera tonight that, that Marceline Missouri which is uh, is always sort of described as Walt Disney's hometown, it's what he himself described it as his hometown, he lived there for a total of five years, <laughs> between the ages of uh, five and nine I think, or you know four, four and a half and nine and um, so, and, and Marceline Missouri becomes, uh, when Disneyland is created in, in the 50s, Main Street Marceline, as it existed during Walt Disney's childhood, you know, I guess we're sort of talking about 1910, 1920 or so, that Main Street then becomes the model for Main Street in Disneyland. So the real sense that, that, that Disney is kind of picking up this sort of iconography of the, you know, the, the white picket fence and the drugstore. And indeed, there's a, I think in Disneyland's, at the moment, Marceline's is is the confectionery store that's on Main Street. So there's a real sense of uh, of kind of reinscribing the kind of yeah the homely virtues of the and uh, apple pie, motherhood, and all of those American virtues. And indeed, that that filters very much into the opera as well. And, and the question also becomes: is to what extent Disney's reinvention of precisely those virtues and indeed that geography um, becomes one that other Americans begin to copy? In other words, um, the movies actually dictate the reality that people create in which to live their lives. Absolutely so. There's a really fascinating story, one of my favourite stories about Disney, which is that um, the State Department in the 1950s, as Disneyland was being created, and this was the kind of great late obsession of, of Disney's life, you know. I mean, in some ways, arguably, even though, you know, we talk about the golden period of, of Disney cartoons through the, the 30s, late 30s and into the 40s, you know, that, that's when all of the great films, Snow White, Pinocchio, Dumbo, are made. Um, actually... Disney's kind of done with animation by that point almost. You know, Fantasia is the absolute sort of high point of his interest in it. But he's already moving on and, you know, partly one of the reasons that he, he gets interested in, in live action films is because then you don't have to hire a load of commie 
animators. <laughs> and it's, it's quite literally one of the... Just comic actors. Yeah, exactly, comic actors instead, yeah. Um, although, you know, actors can be, can be more biddable than animators sometimes because you can mess with their contracts um, and you can't redraw their work. Um, but the, uh, I think the interesting thing almost is that... Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of fictionalised idea, and indeed the State Department suggests in, in, in an internal memo in, in 1950 that if you're bringing foreign dignitaries to visit the United States, really they don't actually need to travel anywhere else other than Disneyland, <laughs> and, and there's a, which leads on to an even better story, which is that when Khrushchev uh, visited America in the 50s and as a state visit, he very much wanted to go to Disneyland, which had just been opened. And his Russian Secret Service KGB minders said, well, I'm afraid uh, uh, we can't let you go there. The security is... is, is uh, we, we can't make you safe. The space is too open. It's too risky. Uh, whereupon he was absolutely furious and ended the visit early, giving a press conference at the airport that basically implied that he was going back to tend his nuclear weapons. Uh, so the, the irony being the ultimate kind of childhood fantasy of being denied Disneyland you know, may indeed have have hastened, you know, the Bay of Pigs and, and this crisis in '66. I, I don't know how true that is, but it's a fascinating story. Um, back from speculation to something that you, in a sense, alluded to, which is the strike, Disney's animators. Um, what is this really about? This strike? We're going to see it in the opera. We'll come back to it in a moment. But what is the strike in terms of the historical record? Well, it, it's really um, it's it's headed into the backstory. It, it, it is to do with many things that are happening at once. One of which is the very basic fact that the Disney studio has grown enormously through the 1930s. You know, if you think that the early Disney films, you know, from you know the sort of very late 20s, early 30s, you know, by the end of the 30s, 37, I mean, he's already producing, they are already producing feature-length musicals, feature-length films, sorry, feature-length animated films. Um, so the, the studio has grown enormously. You know, it was kind of run as a sort of family business, really. It was by Walt and by his brother Roy. Um, it's grown enormously, uh, like all large companies that grow very quickly, uh, there are lots of internal tensions there about who's been promoted above whom, so that's going on. The other thing that's going on is that um, war has broken out in Europe in, in 1939, 1940, which is really starting to affect America during 1940, I think. Uh, and so, you know, for various practical reasons, a lot of animators have been called up to serve. Also, the fact that, you know, Disney, to his immense annoyance, has lost a lot of European market <laughs> because of this inconvenient war that's happening there. So that's going on as well. Um, the second thing, uh, the third thing really, is that um, Snow White has been so successful that um, Disney decides to move the studios from their original home, or one of their earliest homes in, in Hyperion Avenue, uh, to a much larger studio in Burbank, in California, which is where the, the Walt Disney Studios are now. And this was, I mean, all the animators looked forward a great deal to going there because it was going to be this kind of wonderful, industrialised, sort of futuristic place to work. Uh, everything was going to be perfect. And of course, it, it was deeply industrial. It was modelled on a Ford factory, and it broke down the animation process to a series of industrial processes. So, you know, at the top of the tree, you have the animators who are doing the original drawings. Below those, you have the, I mean, they're called the, the paint and ink girls often. I mean, they, and they were all women. Um, no, no female animators were allowed in Disney. Uh, doing that incredibly menial work of, of copying all of the drawings and filling in the colours. And then, you know, so it goes on. So that's feeding in. At the same time, um, you know, the union is starting to form. People sense that Uncle Walt isn't perhaps as benevolent as he would himself like to believe. And it all leads into this, this dreadful standoff that happens in 1941, which happens, which goes on for seven months, is it, in the end, I think? 
And the only way it can really be ended is when Roy, who is a much more sensible character than his brother, uh, says, okay, the only way we can end this bitter labour dispute is basically by sending Walt Disney off to South America. Uh, he sends him off on a kind of business trip to go and glad hand people in South America. And whilst, <laughs> as soon as D Walt is gone, within 24 hours, the strike has been sorted. And essentially, the animators have, have got what they wanted. They've got pay increases, they've got better, better conditions. But, and this is a crucial thing, I think, because again, it feeds into the opera. Um, Walt is not a man who forgets. Uh, so he may have lost in 1941, he may have lost that battle, but he certainly doesn't lose the war because, of course, as you mentioned at the beginning, in 1947 he goes before the House and American Activities Committee and testifies and basically tells the committee, gives them names of people who weren't communist at all, as far as we can tell, may have flirted with, with left-wing allegiances. A lot of people did in Hollywood at that time, but were just people he didn't like. Uh, and he denounces them as communists. And one of them has to, has to flee to Britain, in fact, um, because it, life becomes impossible for him in the United States. So Walt gets his own back. He's, he's, he's not a man you want to cross. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. More about Walt on the stage in a moment. Thanks very much indeed. The libretto for Philip Glass's The Perfect American is by Rudy Wurlitzer. Wurlitzer? Wurlitzer? Wurlitzer, I think. It's felt the same as the uh, machine. And it began as a novel with the same title, The Perfect American, by uh, Peter Stepan Junk. It centres on Disney's final months, as we've said, in 1966, after he'd been diagnosed with lung cancer. So we begin in the hospital room in Bur Bur Burbank. Uh, we then travel back to his time uh, in his office, to his home in Los Angeles, and to the first Disneyland in Anaheim, California. He also makes one last visit to Marceline, the town in Missouri where he grew up and discovered his love of trains. There are historical characters, both Disney brothers, Walt and Roy, their families, and the celebrated animatronic Abraham Lincoln, created for the New York World Fair of 1964. And a surprise visitor too. Um, if you are looking at the screens to my left, you'll be seeing still images from the production and you may spot a rather surprising figure in dark glasses who turns up. Um, there are also imaginary characters. William Dantine. He's a former employee sacked by Disney for his union activities, we imagine, in The Strike, The Trouble in Paradise that Andrew and I have been talking about. You were never were an artist, Dantine tells Walt. All you are is a moderately successful CEO. However, in the course of this evening, you won't meet Mickey, Minnie, Donald Duck, Pluto or Goofy because the Disney Corporation refused to let any of their artists take part in the opera. Well, we're joined now by Christopher White, who's a member of the English National Opera Music staff here and is also the assistant conductor on this production of The Perfect American. Will you welcome Christopher White? Christopher, while you're getting yourself settled, um, what was your first impression when you opened the score, when, when the task fell to you to work on this opera? Relief that it wasn't handwritten, um, because <laughs> I've seen the uh, Satyagraha full score, and uh, that is an extraordinary thing, and it's uh, written by hand, so that was good that it was uh, computerised. Secondly, uh, that it was nothing like what I was expecting, um, nothing like what any of us were expecting, I don't think. Um, you know, there are unquestionably many elements that make it unmistakably by Philip Glass, but um, also his, uh, his approach to narrative um, and in this, this story of real things happening to real people, um, in that sense, uh, in a way, it's much more conventionally operatic than 
something like Satyagraha, which is 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 an extraordinary theatrical experience, where um, narrative in the conventional sense is less prominent, perhaps. And that comes out certainly in the structure of the piece as a whole and the libretto, but also in the music. Um, so I mean, it starts. times five and then percussion joins in various different notes and instruments join in that's that's very much what we've come to recognize it's as Walt's lying in his hospital bed uh, the end of his life tormented by by various figures um, but then there are also incredibly lyrical passages when he's at home I mean he, uh, glass makes great distinctions between the sort of at work Walt and the at home Walt um, I might play you some l later on uh, examples of that um, so yeah all in all um, that we were in for a very new experience. But that sounds, as you described, as if Glass is operating musically, at least within what we understand as the major convention of, of the great European operatic tradition. In other words, using the music to characterise the people that we meet and also the places in which we meet them. Yes, I think he's characterising um, the experiences that the people have rather than the people themselves, perhaps. Um, What's interesting is when there's, there's a big standoff in one scene between Dantine and Walt, um, and the music's actually quite, quite neutral, um, and it sort of allows the space for the characters to, to um, build up their own, their own um, anger and, 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 and stresses. However, uh, I'll give you an example if you like. Uh, there's a lovely section when Walt is uh, with his uh, nurse and also his very close companion, Hazel George. Uh, let me try and find it. Um, and it's just very loving, really. Here we are. Just a snapshot, just a few bars, really. Um, it's distinctively American. It might even be distinctively modern American. But it's, you also you, you hear some some uh, some some warmth and some some feeling in that that you might identify with a more conventional opera. And if you if you played with that, and I, mm. without me knowing what it was, I would have had no immediate recognition uh, that it was Philip Glass. Absolutely. So, so what actually is happening here then? What's he doing? Is he borrowing from our American composers? Am um, I right to hear Copeland sometimes? Yes, in the score? absolutely. In fact, I'm, I'm going to play something else which sounds very much like Copeland. Um, the piece is very heavily reliant on orchestration, I should point out, so I, I, I do my best to recreate the sounds. But this is a, a lovely sort of brass chorale at the beginning of this is, again, this is a sort of at home waltz. Here we go. suggests to me that, that what Lars is doing is endeavouring to create exactly what the title of the opera is, American. He's trying to write a score Absolutely. that grows out of a whole range of different traditions. Absolutely, and they're all American traditions, and what's struck me as very interesting is that the people who wrote the music for Disney's cartoons, of course, tended to be displaced Europeans um, who studied with uh, the European greats and Schoenberg and so on. So, um, yes, Glass is creating a very, very distinctively um, American landscape. I'll play you one more example if you like, just right at the end. Um, we have the chorus off stage, and uh, I, I won't sing. The, the, the words are In Disney's world, the sky is bluer than blue, the grass is greener than green, the people kinder than kind. 
also at the same time you have this figure. So. just slightly muddying the waters harmonically. Um, so, I mean, if the, the first time through I played it, it sounds to me like the end of a, a 1930s film or something. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's just adding um, a, little, a little spice into it as well. So it's very eclectic. Do you think this is, is different? I know you worked on, 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 I think, on the production of, of Satagraha here. Is it different, the music that he's writing for this um, opera? I have to say, I, I didn't work on it, but I've spoken to my colleagues at length who, who did. Um, it, it's certainly safer to play. Um, Satagraha is, is, uh, it has got RSI written all over it because it's... Uh, um, how long is it? Four and a half hours? Or and and that's, that's an experience to which you submit. Um, and that's, that's, that's absolutely glorious in its own way. Um, but uh, you know, the the perfect American is. The more I think of it, the more actually uh, conventional in the best sense. He is using the conventions of opera. And is are there musical identities for scenes, emotions experienced by the other characters, or is this really Walt Disney's opera? Um, I wouldn't say it's light motivic in any in any Wagnerian kind of sense. You you, you do get this a lot. Um, you, this, this sense of obsession. There's a lot of obsession going on. I mean, Disney is obsessed with the company. Dantine is obsessed with why he was fired uh, 10 years previous to, to these altercations that are happening. Um, he's kind of a rebel without a cause. What's quite interesting is that harmonically, Dantine's lines are always, what you might say, in the cracks. They don't, they don't necessarily fit. And that fits very nicely with his character because he doesn't fit anywhere. And we don't really get it. It's deliberate. We don't really get a sense about why he has this vendetta against Walt beyond the fact that he was fired and his whole identity is tied up in that event um, which means he's a deeply uh, dissatisfied and, and unhappy character. I wonder what, what are the challenges of standing in front of the uh, English National Orchestra conducting this piece? What, what does it pose? Um, I think they're primary, primarily rhythmic challenges really. Um, you know it's just on a very practical, in a very practical sense it's an extremely uh, wide pit uh, as by Opera House standards, which means you, you have the horns about 20 feet over there and trumpets 20 feet over there, and, and to, to coordinate that in, in, in the cross-rhythmic uh, way that glass often does, I'll, I'll show you an example of that actually, um, is, is quite, is, that's the biggest challenge I think. Um, and also um, really extracting the different colours from it. He, he uses really conventional forces, I mean there's an electric bass guitar and a contrabass clarinet. Uh, but apart from that, it's it, completely conventional orchestral forces, which is quite interesting. Um, and the way he uses them, and again, it's this, it's, it, it slightly alienates you, but slightly makes you feel at home. Um, so here's an example of the, 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 the cross rhythms. So the, the 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 large beats are basically the same, but the the way the instruments um, are uh, doing doing cross using cross rhythms um, varies wildly, and also when you have add percussion to that, the precision is everything basically. Christopher, thank you very much. You come and join us here because okay. I'm sure there'll be questions from the audience. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew, back to you. We 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 talked about. 
Walt Disney is a historical figure. Um, do you recognise Glass and indeed Wurlitzer's Disney on stage as having uh, a close link with what we actually know? <laughs> After all, it was a novel that was the beginning, yeah. not a work of biography. That's the important thing, yes. This, this thing, uh, this, this piece is is based on a sort of imaginary retelling of, of Walt Disney's life. It's not even quite a retelling of it because the whole thing is framed, as, as we've heard, from Walt Disney lying on his deathbed, really, in, in hospital. So it's even kind of, it's even more distance than that, is sort of his remembrances of his own life. And does it bear resemblance to, to, to reality? Yeah, I, th I think it absolutely does. I mean, there are many things here that did actually happen. Uh, there are some things that didn't happen but which kind of should have happened in a, in a way um i don't know how much i want to say really i mean it, the, the, you mentioned the figure in dark glasses okay well it's not it's not a spoiler to, to say this but um andy warhol appears on stage as you'll see from your programs if you glance at them uh warhol and disney never actually met although warhol did indeed screen print disney's impression and also screen printed mickey mouse because i think as i was saying earlier you can't really represent mid-century america without representing disney uh that never happened as a historical event, but one can very easily imagine situations in which it might have occurred. As to what kind of character Walt is, um, it's a fascinating thing because I feel that the, the opera is, is always dancing around the paradoxes that we were talking about earlier, the sense of like, well, who is Disney really? On the one hand, he's this. On the other hand, he's that. Nice guy, also deeply flawed, uh, innocent, and yet incredibly controlling. And... I, what I like about the opera is actually that it doesn't really try to resolve those. Um, it's a bit like seeing someone taking stock of their life and not really quite clear where the calculation comes out, almost. A... The, the great taking of stock um, of a life, I suppose, in American cinema is Citizen Kane, um, uh, with that extraordinary um, MacGuffin, what on earth does Rosebud mean, uh, in which the whole story is told in that kind of brief newsreel at the very beginning of those early scenes. I have a sense that somehow this is actually the way the libretto that Wurlitzer has designed in a way works too. It's the idea that at this moment of death, it isn't that our whole lives suddenly pour before us, but in fact our whole lives are laid out and make sense in an American way. Is that what you think is going on? I, I think almost certainly. I mean, I, I, the other thing I, I thought of really is, is Scrooge, in a sense. Although the interesting thing about this opera is that it, there is, although he's visited, as it were, by the kind of ghosts of animators past, uh, he doesn't get the chance to, to resolve anything. There is no salvation here. I think you're exactly right. Citizen Kane is, is the great source. And in a way, in the opera, uh, Disney's rosebud is, is Marceline, Missouri, the place where, well, he didn't grow up, really. He spent quite a short amount of time. But this comes back. I, I, I am wary of using the word leitmotif in front of a, a proper musician. But um, there, is, there is musical material which surrounds Marceline, isn't there? Which, uh, which is a sense of, of this idea of kind of American purity and, and innocence uh, that kind of both haunts Disney and also pushes him forward. So yeah, so I, I think in a, in a sense there are sort of references to Kane. Uh, is, it a, is it a MacGuffin? Is it not? I mean, uh, in this opera it feels again it's quite unresolved uh, as, as to what that really means. And I think it's interesting as well if you think about Rosebud versus Marceline, you know, Rosebud is eventually revealed to be a, a childhood sled. It's a kind of meaningless object, but it's also to do with loss. Here it's to do with an entire American way of life, but I think the thing, the poignant thing is that it may never have existed. But it's to do with railways. 
I think so. Sledges and railways. Sledges and railways. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a clever connection. Um, yeah, You're, I'll let you over. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I, is whether whether it's fair to say that the the, the walk that emerges in this piece, um, in in Christopher Pepys' astonishing performance, is in fact really a man who is totally emotionally arrested, who is stuck indeed at that moment that he was when he was for those few years in Marceline. I think that's true, and that that comes through musically as well. You have a sense of the curious thing about Walt that keeps sort of striking me, and uh, sorry, the reason I call him Walt, it sounds very chintzy, is actually just to distinguish him from Roy, um, because once you start saying Disney, we're referring to the, I mean, there are, you know, 16 Disneys now involved in the corporation. Um, once you start thinking about Walt, is, you have a sense, the thing I can never really work out about him is to what extent he believes it. To what extent does he believe the propaganda that he creates around himself, this mythical image? Does he really buy into any of this? I mean, one of the interesting stories about him is that, as well as being a kind of very sort of puritanical Midwestern character, as you'd expect from a man of his generation growing up where he grew up, um, his real way of demonstrating that he loved the, the films that the studio was producing was that he would cry through them. And it's said that Snow White, uh, he never saw without being able to cry more or less continually all of the way through. Um, which I, I find fascinating because it's an image of childhood, isn't it? It's, it's an image of, as you say, someone someone arrested in, in, in some moment of childhood. Um, I, th I should say, we should say, I think, that in the opera there are more malevolent waltz on display as well. It isn't just a kind of childhood innocent. You know, he's shown to be vindictive. He's shown to be anti-Semitic. Uh, he's shown to, you know, have a big problem with left-wingers, to put it mildly. Um, all of these other waltz are in play as well, and it's kind of, which waltz do you believe? I, I, th I thought it significant that he and Roy, but he most notably, wear uh, cowboy boots all the way through this. Mm, yeah, that's in a sense, that, they, they, that represents the notion of the frontier, perhaps, that sense of, 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 of even in, in, in Marceline, they were still on the frontier of some kind of experience. Yeah, I, I think that's right, and certainly the way that Disney talks in real life about his, his own childhood and, and the way that he's very, very eager to burnish this myth. I mean, it's a kind of Horatio Alger story, really, isn't mm. it? You know, the kind of boy who... <laughs> You know, had nothing. I mean, actually, when you read about Disney's childhood, it was you know kind of abusive. He had a very, very complicated relationship with his father. Was very, very close to his mother. But then there was this dreadful Freudian moment, really, which is that he ends up he buys a house for his parents. Um, this is in the 40s, I think. I hope I got this right. Um, and there is a fault with the heating system. You know, the thing they most want, probably like most Americans of that generation, is they want central heating, his parents. He buys them a wonderful house with central heating. There's a fault with the central heating, which means that his, both his parents are poisoned by carbon monoxide and his mother dies. Um, so, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's an analyst White. would have a lot it's of work to do. Let's Snow put it that White way. All over again. It is Snow White all over again, exactly. Coming back to the production, I mean, the amazing production, which some we can see on the screen to our left, um, has these extraordinary animations, which are animations of drawings. And it seemed to me that maybe what the piece is also uh, exploring is the idea that Disney f somehow must have felt that by drawing the world, by drawing America, he could not only summon America into existence, the picket fence America we talked about earlier, but he could also control America. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing, I, I think, as well as the animations that occur on stage, because of actually quite possibly that restriction up about not being able to use any of the Disney symbolism. There are certain moments where you can sense them getting, you know, within a, a call to a lawyer away from what might be regarded as, as Disney imagery, but they never get that close. Actually, I think it's a wonderfully freeing thing, that because actually you have to think, well, what is this iconography about? And what I love about the animations on stage is that they're 
they're rough in a way that um, that Disney imagery often isn't. I mean, I, I think if you're looking for an index of what Disney imagery does and what it's about, you compare the uh, E.H. Shepard illustrations for Winnie the Pooh with the Walt Disney version, and you sort of see, you know, all of the kind of, you know, the, the roughness has been removed, all of the curves have been smoothed. There's a real sense of uh, of kind of airbrushing, quite literal airbrushing. And actually what you get on stage is, is much rougher than that, which is fascinating. And of course, nipples are removed in Fantasia in a celebrated sequence too. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, which takes us back really to the sense in which, which we, the, maybe the Disney we get in both life and indeed uh, in Glass's version is a Disney who is a paradox, a man of the 20th century, uh, quintessentially associated with that great 20th century invention, the idea of the all-powerful brand, and yet a man who aspires and whose values are entirely of an earlier period, the 19th century. I think that's right, and it's very interesting because there is a scene in the opera, uh, which I, I really won't spoil, but it's very, very interesting, that the, the scene involving the animatronic Abraham Lincoln, which you know absolutely did exist, was created for the 1964 World's Fair, and also did not work. <laughs> um, and Disney, I mean, the, the opening of the whole ex exhibit was delayed by several days because Disney himself took charge of the whole enterprise. He became maniacally obsessed about it. But I think what's interesting about that is the use of, of, of absolutely avant-garde 20th century technology it used the same sound recorders that were used in Polaris submarines uh, to tell a story to America about itself and about its, its, its origins and about a 19th century America and in some senses a simpler America. You know, that exhibit is, is a great symbol of, of, of Disney Corp in a way because it's, it's sponsored by... A, a huge corporate sponsor. It's developed by someone else's money and it ends up in Disneyland and becomes one of the most profitable things that they do. And it's also a story about America. I mean, it's all there. Mm. Well, that's a good point, ladies and gentlemen, to ask if you would like to join us and ask some questions. There is the usual roving microphone. If you'd like to put your hand up uh, for either of our two guests, um, catch my eye and then we will get to you. One there first and then we'll take the gentleman in, in the splendid shirt behind. Um. He's obviously a person who moves technologically forward, but he seems to be himself stuck in the 1930s. And I just wondered if you could say something about that dating and the, the cross rhythms that you played on the piano. Do you think that they are, have any link with, with jazz, which he doesn't seem to have absorbed at all? Yes. Um, I, that's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, it's, it's Glass's interpretation of someone else's interpretation of the final days of Walt Disney. So I think um, linking it uh, to musically, specifically with the character of Walt, might um, be something of a, a, of a red herring. What, what, what I found fascinating is how eclectic the score is. Um, the cross rhythms, uh, where they come, certainly uh, in the extract that I played, which was very cross-rhythmic, uh, was Walt and Roy actually at work um, at their Epcot Centre, which, which we haven't mentioned yet, which was their, their centre for essentially building a better world. So it was this, um, this ob 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 obsession and uh, industrialised, mechanised um, uh, idea. And so that's, that's where, where Glass is, 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 is uh, pointing us, I think, with, with, with music like that. What, what is so interesting, I think, is how relatively sparingly he uses um, uh, cross rhythms in in that way. Um, there are many other passages I could play, could have played, which are as lyrical, if not more so, than the passage I I play first. Um, and uh, going back and forth, forth between those different personas of Walt, very much as uh, as as we were saying earlier, um, is what's so interesting about about the character of Walt Disney, the piece and uh, and the story. So. The gentleman behind. 
wholesome Uncle Walt, the, uh, the, 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 the lovely guy who sells family entertainment, isn't it tempting to depict him as a buddy? Like, wouldn't we like to see him as a pedophile ex-murderer? My, my, my feeling is that he's, he really wasn't. He wasn't worse or better than you and me. But because he was the wholesome Uncle Walt who did cartoons, then, uh, you know, we, we would like to see him to be worse than he actually was, or not. What do you think? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. Um, I wish I knew who Walt Disney really was. I, I wonder sometimes whether Walt Disney knew who really Walt Disney was. There were so many changes that he went through in his life, so many reconstructions of identity. I think that, I think your central point there, I think is right, that there's a sort of sense of almost the kind of postmodern fight back against against Disney, uh, that because Disney is so pervasive, so successful globally, I mean, I don't know whether it's possible to be a child in the late 20th century and 21st century and not come across Disney in, in some way. I mean, I, I'm, it's embarrassing to admit it, but my very first memory is of being taken aged four and a half to Disney World, a very exciting trip for my whole family. And my, my first memory, I think, is of Mickey Mouse. I mean, that's horrifying. <laughs> Um, so, um, you know, I, I think... But surely not your very first memory, <laughs> well, I, I, I hope, think... hope your parents had a role. Uh, well, yeah, but uh, she's probably Mickey Mouse. Um, but I, I think there is... Um, so I think there is something in that, that yes, exactly, because it's, it's sort of so innocent and so, so simple and is doing this kind of particular cultural work to do with, you know, removing the nipples, as it were, making everything kind of perfect and... and, 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 and innocent that yeah we want to make it much more evil I mean I think you know there is a, a hugely successful guidebook called the dark side of Disney which is basically all about you know how you can score drugs in Disney World and you know how how you can sort of find sort of pickup joints um, around the back of the Magic Kingdom and all of this kind of thing so there's there's something there as well yeah and I think I think that's right that all that said all of these things did happen I mean it is true that you know he testified against communists and was recruited by the FBI in the mid-50s and became a, a very high-level informant, uh, reporting on what was going on in Hollywood. And he was far from the only person to do that, but he did so with particular zest, it's got to be said. part of its era. I mean, yeah. you know, to, to be a racist, you know, yeah. it's part of that. I mean, who wasn't in America in those I think that's exactly fair. And, and, and indeed, you know, the issues about, you know, whether he is anti-Semitic or not, you know, it's probably a bit of the double think that exists in America at this period. You know, he's simultaneously able to have Jewish colleagues, Jewish lawyers, Jewish financiers, and at the same time, you know, kind of make jokes about Jewish people. I mean, it's part of what's going on, I think, as you suggest. Do we have another question? Another question? Have we? Yes. Um, I'm not sure that the three of us here can actually probably say anything useful that, except I think Andrew's point was that, that, that because we don't see images that we're familiar with, uh, in a sense our imaginations work in rather different ways visually in the course of the, of, of the evening, as you will discover, often in, qu in quite exciting ways, I found, mm. I think. I mean, I, as, as far as I'm aware, the, the, the literal story behind it is that I don't even know whether the Disney Corporation were approached to use the imagery because I th they would have certainly said no and even if they'd said yes it would have cost an enormous amount I know that I mean there is uh, Philip Glass says that he was called by a representative of Disney to someone trying to dissuade him from doing this piece um, you know I'm sure that all sorts of pressures both legal and and under the table were applied but um, I probably shouldn't say more actually <laughs> we have one last quick question in the front row here the microphone is coming 
arrived, I asked the running time because I have to get home and I wanted to be able to. Would you like to comment on that? The what, in the sense of telling you how long it's going to no, last? I know right. how long it's going to last. But I'm interested, it seems so comparatively short. Well, very short for a public class. Uh, yes, well, uh, that's that's true, and that's I think that's what's interesting is that it's um, as I've said before, it's it's highly eclectic, um, and it's I suppose in the sense that it is minimalist, whatever that means. Um, he uses uh, the the devices, um, the different emotions, the different um, uh, references, quite sparingly, um, and uh, there's there's an emptiness at the heart of the plot and the, the, the characters' lives. I think, you know, Walt has um, these great designs to become a messiah. He literally says that in the libretto. Um, and Dantine has these designs on, I don't know what, satisfaction, um, financial satisfaction or otherwise, as he says, also in the libretto. Um, but in the end, it comes to nothing. Disney isn't cryogenically frozen, and uh, Dantine doesn't, doesn't get his fight, doesn't get his money. Um, and uh, so the... Um, the opera reflects that in a way. It reflects the, 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 the hopes that build up and then sort of have gradually, gradually ebb away. Um, and it's not, as I said before, the, 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 the quasi-spiritual experience of uh, Satyagraha um, to which you really submit. And a real reference for that kind of piece, I think, is the, the Messiaen opera based on Francis of Assisi, which is another, um, it's, it's like a five-hour sermon. Um, but uh, this is doing very different things. This is telling human stories. Um, and within quite a short time frame as well, just a few months at the end, the end of 1966. But yes, you're right, it's unusual. <laughs> well, who knows? But I would just I would just add that maybe sometimes brevity is indeed the soul of wit. You must judge for yourselves afterwards. Um, some thank yous. Thank you to all of you for, for being here this evening. And a reminder that there is a, uh, a new season of pre-performance talks that begin when Eno begins the autumn season. And I think on your seats you'll find details of them. We shall hope to see all of you uh, in the new season. Um, in the meantime, thanks to, to our special guests who have been with us, Andrew Dixon and Christopher White. Thank you both very much. Indeed.